welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Okay, we have Elisa Schlepp with us today. Elisa, do you mind telling me a little bit about what you do professionally? Sure. I am a counselor licensed in both Ohio and Texas. I see a lot of religious trauma clients, clients with trauma in general. I also do EMDR therapy on the daily. Awesome. Well, and so you and I actually met in a religious trauma therapy consult group, right? Yep. And I went into that group with a lot of like survivor stuff. So um, being a part of a group has been challenging for me, but it's been really valuable just to get back into group spaces and everything. Yeah, I know. It was was weirdly vulnerable, I feel like, for me to join that group because it was just so, so personal on top of the professional side. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I felt the same way. Um, okay. So speaking of which, uh, what types of experiences with religious trauma have you had either professionally or personally that kind of inform your work? Yeah. So I could talk for hours about the whole thing. I feel like I could write volumes about experiences and everything. Um, not just my own, but of others. Um, but without getting into specifics, ever since I learned the terminology or the phrase religious trauma was kind of normalized for me, I've started to see how pervasive it is in so many areas, like the hierarchy dynamics and the power struggles happen in so many organizations, like even gyms, PTAs. Um, <laughs> and I just see how people are looking for connection and they're looking for belonging. And so many people end up in unhealthy power dynamics. And sometimes it's just a reminder of what's familiar. It's a reminder of what hasn't worked, but like you just keep getting drawn in to those unhealthy dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that you mentioned like just kind of seeing the, the template of high control groups happening in Mm -hmm. other places, sort of like once you recognize the mechanism, because it's so true, Mm -hmm. it's easier to spot it once you know what to look for. Yeah. And on a personal level, I just didn't have the vocabulary for it. Like stuff felt off and wrong, but I couldn't really put words to it until I really started kind of honing in on things and looking at what all these people have in common and what I have in common and things. Um, But it's really helped me to have a vocabulary to put to my experience. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what your experience of religious trauma felt like. I would say it feels a lot like grief, you know, um, relationships change, you know, uh, you start to pick apart, doubt everything, you know, everything you've been taught, you know, there's this question of, am I allowed to, you know, identify the stuff I don't agree with, you know, cause it was never, do you agree or not? Like it's, is it biblical or not, you know? Yeah. So some of it is like, you know, getting into a place in different relationships where people can kind of give you that permission to be able to ask those questions or, you know, um, if my nervous system feels so much more at ease, not going to church, am I allowed to not go, you know? Mm. (laughs) So the hard questions, you know, um, growing up in religion or like, you know, working in ministry full-time and stuff, 
there's always those easy answers, you know, just like, oh, you have to have faith, you have to forgive, you know, do this or do that. And it's so easy to say that, but like, kind of on the other side, or like on the deconstruction side, or whatever you want to label it as, just trying to give yourself that permission to do so is really hard sometimes. So that's what it's felt like for me. Like I, I ask myself a lot, am I allowed to do this? Or, you know, right now I don't have to ask anyone for permission to think certain things and that's very foreign to me. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that a lot from clients who grew up in religion that there's definitely that sort of compulsion to ask for permission and to, you know, question like, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And just that, that anxiety kind of, it gets planted really deep. Yeah. Uh huh. Cause when you're in those circles, you know, who you're supposed to turn to, like, you know, who the next person up on the totem pole is, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, when you kind of get out of those structures and you're kind of like, Oh, you know, I'm allowed to run this by myself and run it by my own values. It's like, am I allowed to do that? Or like, how do I know they're good enough or they're right enough? And so I don't know. That's what it's felt like to me. It's just kind of like this tug of war. It's a storm, you know, with freedom comes a lot of fear at the same time. So yeah, it's, uh, it's time consuming. (laughs) Yeah. So you, you bring us to, uh, something that I really do want to focus on today, which is the uh, particular type of anxiety that often comes with religious trauma, which is an OCD scrupulosity kind of anxiety. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. So um, I can tell you how it's manifested in my life just from, you know, a very personal perspective. Um, It can manifest in different ways. But um, the first factor is that OCD tendencies tend to run in my family. Okay. Just, you know, they manifest in different ways in different people. So I definitely see the biological disposition that I have towards having this type of anxiety. Um, But basically what I would describe scrupulosity as is only hearing the first part of the gospel. And nothing after that can get in your mind, you know. So the first part of the gospel, which... Even today, I was having a conversation with my husband about, is it really necessary to put that much guilt on a person, you know, of like, God hates sin, you've fallen short, there's nothing you can do about it, you know, um, you're just destined for hell, but I have the right answer, you know, I, I was like, is it really necessary to tear a person down like that? And then the cynic in me is like, oh, well, it's a sales pitch to get people into church and like, you know, to keep the church afloat financially. Like, yeah, so cynical. But going back, um, scrupulosity is only hearing that first part. You know, there's no grace with scrupulosity. Um, so it's basically you trying to find things that you can control to reduce the tension of I'm bad. This is permanent. Yeah. I'm not going to survive. Um, so grace self-compassion, those have never been in the cards for me. And this is stuff that manifested throughout my childhood, but I never had the words to put with them. I didn't realize I was doing so many compulsions as a kid Hmm. to neutralize some of this until, you know, I was already practicing as a therapist. So looking back, well, those were compulsions and they had a very religious theme to them. So yeah, you see a lot of um, obsessions regarding religion or being perfect, trying not to mess up 
some of that is tied into the culture that I grew up in, just like the Christian media culture and stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and just out of curiosity, what uh, denomination were you mainly involved in? I was mainly involved in non-denominational circles as a kid. I'd go to this like knockoff Awana at another church. I know that, that was a Baptist <laughs> thing, but so I got involved in some Baptist programs when I was a kid. So I kind of had a little bit of a taste of a few different circles. And then once I was an adult, I actually got, I would say the word stuck. I got stuck in a Pentecostal circle, um, which that was very unfamiliar to me just because I didn't grow up with that. But, you know, crazy cycles there that I lived through. Yeah. So you mentioned like the obsessions, which makes sense in the you know, sort of like fire and brimstone version of scaring people into Christianity, you know, like that, that definitely creates the obsession, but what are some of the like compulsions that you noticed in yourself to deal with that anxiety? So as a kid, first of all, you know, the left behind series came out when I was quite young. So I was exposed to that into those concepts and things like that. So I remember that I would like cry at night and, you know, want to talk to my parents, get this reassurance, you know, that I wasn't going to be left behind, you know, as a kid who's like eight, nine years old, you know, it's really scary because you're like, what if my parents get taken? Like I'm now at the age of reckoning, you know? So what if they get taken and I end up staying? How am I going to survive? How will I get food? You know, like, will I be able to walk all the way to my grandparents' house? Like, what if they're gone, you know? <laughs> like the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of worrying about that. Or if these other people are right about living through the tribulation, how will I do that? Like, there's a lot of like end time stuff that would worry me a lot. So I also had a couple experiences where, number one, my neighbors got a Ouija board out one time when I was there and I didn't know what it was. They called it, they called it an angel board. Okay. And there was like angels on it and stuff. And so like, we were like asking it questions and I had never been exposed to anything like this. Like I had no idea what that was. And so when my parents found out, they were like super mad. They talked to the neighbor's parents and all this stuff. And I think that happened like a couple months after I'd gotten baptized. And so when I, got baptized, which I feel like that was um, kind of a compulsion in a way of me just like trying to be reassured, you know, that Mm -hmm. um, I was okay, I wasn't going to be left behind, you know. So I got baptized. And then I screwed that up, you know, like by playing with this Ouija board. Oh, and I had no idea, like, I had no idea it was bad. So I was, I was just like, okay, well, I messed that up, you know. (laughs) And so there was that. And then I started doing this thing as a compulsion, now I can say that that's what it was, of telling the future. So I would say like, oh, in the future, I'll touch that water bottle. And then I would do it, you know, Mm. it's just, it's all a control thing. Or like in the future, I'll pick up that pen and I would do it. Like comforting yourself with knowing what's going to happen. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So one time all this like came to a head because we went to this wedding And it's like a movie. I can see it. Like, I don't think you could write this screenplay anymore perfectly. But the flower girl dropped all these flower petals down the aisle. 
So I was sitting in this pew of a church. I was like two people in and I looked over into the aisle and I saw this pile of flower petals that were kind of like stuck together. And I was like, in the future, I'll step on those flower petals, you know, like after the ceremony. And so it was just like a normal daily thing for me to like predict the future like that. And so when the ceremony was over, the bride came down the aisle and her train took away that little stack of petals and I couldn't find them. Oh no. You know, I couldn't find the ones I said I was going to step on. So I, in my mind was like, I'm doing witchcraft and I'm trying to predict the future. This is sorcery. God hates this. So it's so subtle, but at the same time, it's a very strong and pervasive way that scrupulosity just like grabs hold of any little thing. So I was feeling just tremendous guilt. I said I was going to do something. I didn't do it. I'm lying. I'm trying to act like I have superpowers. And so someone who's that anxious already, like doing compulsions to neutralize stress, then feeling like the God of the universe is against me and hates me right now. Coupling that with the Ouija board thing. Right. And then one time you know, we were on vacation and I saw this tabloid that said like, the last day of the world is going to be December 21st, 2001 or something like that. And I saw that tabloid and I was just like, oh my gosh, like I have to prepare myself. I have to make sure I'm okay. Or like, you know, I felt all this guilt for even having read that. Mm. And so I couldn't get that out of my mind for the rest of the trip. And this is stuff like, I, I wouldn't bring it up to anyone near me. I was just kind of like, I have to, I have to know I'm in the right place. You know, cause that was the message that was always given. Like, you're not going to be left behind if you know you're okay. Like if you, if you know you're saved, if you know you've asked for forgiveness. Yeah. If you know you're safe, well, you have to have faith. So just know it. And that's not a worry. So if you don't know it for sure, for sure, then there must be a problem. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, there was a lot of superstition kind of mixed in there, like some, some that was like taught to you, but also some that you kind of made up, you know, as a way to pathologize yourself. Like I'm, you know, the whole, I'm a witch thing. Like, where did that come from? Yeah, I have no idea. The Ouija board thing that definitely messed me up. You know, I think back in the mid to late nineties, there was like a lot of talk about well, there's like the satanic panic. Yeah. There was just a lot of talk in our church circles about like, oh, tarot cards and psychic. The occult. Yes. So I was like, well, you can't be on that side of things. Like that, that for sure will make sure you get left behind, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, there's just a lot of obsessions about that stuff. Um, and, you know, I would watch people get baptized and when they come out of the water, I'd be like, okay, like they're good. You know, that's a clean slate right there. But since I messed it all up right after I got baptized, like that was always hard for me. It was like, you're, you're going to mess this up. Mm. And um, there's just been this theme throughout my life of like, I've done bad things and didn't realize they were bad. Like the angel board thing. That was like, uh, according to everyone around these standards, like that was really bad, but I didn't notice. And they're like, well, the devil dresses like an angel of light. So like that concept made me be like, I can mess up at any time. 
and not know, you know? That intensifies the anxiety even so much more because then even if you're doing all the compulsions the right way, there still might be something that you're not doing or that you think is right, but it was actually bad. And right. Ugh. Yeah. So there's that verse that says like, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven to some of you. I'll say, turn away from me or whatever. And so that verse that really fueled my scrupulosity like throughout my preteen teenage years because I was like the people that are saying Lord Lord they they know the vocabulary they've been in the circles they know all this stuff they think they've done everything right so like you think you've done everything right but at the end of the day you find out no you were actually super wrong Mm. yeah 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 that concept you know, would kind of drive me crazy. And like, I'd go to youth conferences. And I remember this one, the guy was like, you have to know your answer. Like, if when you're in front of God, like in that heavenly courtroom, you know, Jesus is your uh, lawyer or whatever, you have to know the answer, like, hey, why should I let you in? So I was at that youth conference. And I was like, I don't know the answer to that. Why should he? I don't know. I don't have a defense prepared. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So that became an obsession. I'd be like, all right, let's rehearse this. Do we know the answer? And like, you have to, you have to have it down because that question is going to be posed to you. You could do everything right. But if you don't know that answer, you know, yeah, these things, that's not biblical. That's not, that's not something that Jesus wanted to portray to people like, Hey, better watch out. Well, and I can, I can picture other kids maybe at that youth conference that you were at hearing that story and potentially not necessarily being really tortured by that idea. Mm-hmm. But it's like, if you have a predisposition yeah. towards anxiety and OCD that, I mean, that what that hit you right in the vulnerable spot. Yes, exactly. So when I got older and I found out, oh, there's such a thing as scrupulosity, I was like, not everyone feels this way. There's people that can just see a tabloid and not care. Like there's people that like can play with a Ouija board and be like, oh, there's nothing to that. I thought everyone experienced this level of anxiety. It was just so foreign to me to learn that my OCD presenting in this way isn't something that the average person experiences. And so that was just a wake up call. Cause like, that's been my only experience and with no words to put to it. Yeah. Even though this isn't, you know, the most common reaction to religion, I do think there are probably multiple people out there listening to this right now who are like, holy crap, <laughs> that's me. Yeah. Because I mean, I had the same experience and I don't, I don't think I have OCD, but I definitely, as soon as I learned the term scrupulosity, I started recognizing all these little things mm-hmm. other than the compulsions to make sure that you were saved or to like practice how you were going to defend yourself in heaven's court. What other ways did high control religion impact you? Yeah. So I could kind of tell you as an adult, when I started to piece all this together and the role that that played, there's just a little story about how all this woke back up. Um, 
I was in my hometown and I came over this blind hill when I was driving and there was a school bus stopped on like the other side, like the downside of the hill. And the speed limit there was like 40 miles per hour. Okay. So by, basically by the time I saw the school bus, I wouldn't have been able to stop. I was just going too fast. It was this whole thing. So um, I didn't stop. I was like, I could get rear-ended. Like I could cause another accident by slamming on my brakes. And so also the lights were yellow on it. Like I was like, I don't think I have to technically stop, whatever. So I passed it. Yeah. A couple weeks later, weeks, literally weeks, this police officer left a business card on my door. Like, hey, you know, get in touch immediately. This is small town Ohio also. So okay. it's, not, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, whatever. So I called the police station. He's like, um, hey, you need to come in to the police station. Like, do you know what this is about? And I was like, I could guess. Is this about a school bus? He's like, yeah, it is. Um, you have to come to the police station and talk to us because you got caught on the cameras, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I could die. So when I was in like the highest control group that I was in, the youth leaders and stuff, they'd kind of like call you and be like, hey, come over to my house. We have to talk. And so like it was impending doom or like, you know, someone's going to yell at you for something that you did. Mm -hmm. That just really affected me all the time, especially since I was always focused on you can't mess up. You have to do things the right way. So this traffic ticket thing happened uh, a couple years after I'd gotten out of my highest control group. So I went to the police station. He's like, you know, the bad news is I can't just find you since this involved children, since it involved um, the school bus. It's a mandatory court appearance. You know, so imagine what that, (laughs) imagine what that did to me. You're going to have to defend yourself. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And like a judge is going to decide your fate, you know, Up until this point, I had a perfect driving record. I had never gotten pulled over anything like that. So that brought into question a lot of stuff, kind of like sin. Mm. You were perfect and then you messed up. And it's another one of those instances where I thought I was doing the right thing. I wasn't texting. I wasn't being negligent. Passing the school bus is the best option just because I don't want to cause an accident. And so tons of thought went into that split second decision. Yeah. But at the end of the day, someone's going to tell you, no, you're actually wrong. So that's been a theme. So anyways, long story short, I went to the court. Like I said, this is small town, Ohio, where they televise court. Um, and my grandparents watch it religiously. Oh, no. So I, um, I noticed that I was in the courtroom where they record and like, there are a lot of cameras and stuff. And I was like, if my grandparents, me on TV here with all these criminals that they always talk about, like that will kill them. You know, I was like, I need to invite them out to dinner tonight so they don't see me on TV. But like, to my knowledge, it wasn't televised that day or like those hearings. So anyways, the judge was like, this is ridiculous. You know, you passing a school bus and stuff like that. You know, what's your side of the story? So I told him about the hill, how I was going the opposite direction. And he's like, okay, let me look up your record. I wasn't even in the computer. (laughs) I had a perfect driving record. He's like, all right, how's 50 bucks sound? That's what the magistrate said to me. Oh, so much mercy. I had a hard time understanding. Wow. I'd never by any of my leaders and stuff like that, like had these appointments of like, come to my house. I'm about to yell at you. And it end with, okay, I, I hear you. Like, I understand your side. 
you're okay. Hmm. $50 was way less than what the minimum for that type of misdemeanor is. And yeah, I, I was just like dumbfounded by the amount of mercy that I was shown. Yeah. The amount of validation and compassion that the magistrate had for me. Wow. But I had to wait like two weeks before I actually went to court, like between the police meeting and the court date. So during those two weeks, I was driving in a parking lot and I said to myself in my head, in the future, I'll turn left. And I was in grad school at this time, actually. And I was like, oh my, Yeah. that just reminded me of all the stuff I would do as a kid when I would start to get the most anxious. So I was like, that's a compulsion. And I was like, this has been a whole thing throughout my whole life in those moments of stress and stuff, like whether it was related to religion or like someone else in authority deciding your fate, you know, that compulsion manifested. And so that's when I sought counseling. That's when I started to put words to all this. That's when I learned that like religious trauma is a thing or, you know, scrupulosity is even a thing. Yeah. So. Wow. That is such a great story. I love that you connected the dots in that moment, you know, like, yeah, I'm so stressed about an authority that I'm worried is judging me. And now I'm doing these behaviors that I used to do for the same reason. Yes. That's awesome. What great insight. I'm so glad that you had the, you know, resources to be able to go and get therapy and like actually get to the bottom of it. Yeah. um, I couldn't find a therapist. Actually, they were booked out like six weeks. Mm. So I turned to my pastor at the time and he was like, well, he had like, a million speeding tickets on his record. Um, But he was like, God doesn't see you like a police officer does. Oh, yeah. So when he said that to me, I was just like, could that be a possibility? Yeah. Yeah. So because of my high control experiences, like people, you know, they would literally like send spies from our youth group. Like, you know, a bunch of people were getting together a house or something like they'd send a spy, you know, a fellow member of the youth group to see what we were talking about, see who all was there, see how people were dressed, like, you know, super invasive privacy wise and stuff like that. Yeah. So having people that would spy like that, it just made me feel like someone's always watching. Like I could be, you know, feeling like I'm doing the right thing, but you know, at the end of the day, someone say I'm actually not. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, that manifests in, you know, worrying about the licensing board. Yeah. You know, are they, are they somehow going to find out that I did something wrong? You know, a lot of people tell me I'm the most ethical person they know. Yeah. And part of it's because of this scrupulosity component. But I'm, I'm like, what if, you know, I felt like I was acting professionally and correctly and everything. What if the licensing board like determines, nope, you're actually not. So we're going to take your license away from you. That's a whole, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord can go to the kingdom of heaven. Right. You know, so I'm like this licensing board, you know, they could say, you thought you were doing things right, but you're actually not. You weren't. Yeah. 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 So we're taking this away from you. You know, having stuff taken away like that drives me crazy. Just like the concept because of, you know, all this stuff being in a high control religious environment, you'd have this disciplinary procedure, you know, you did something wrong, you said the wrong thing. So 
you're not allowed to teach the kids anymore. Yeah. Or like, so you're not allowed to go to the youth group for a month. Um, just like the ostracizing stuff and everything or like the compulsions nowadays is like, you know, double checking my notes. Like, did I, did I do something wrong? That's always the question. Did I do something wrong and not realize it? Mm. But people's counseling license or like medical license get taken away for like gross negligence. Like they knew (laughs) in the moment, but it's so hard because logic just goes out the window when that anxiety brain is happening. Yes. So that made me think of a weird obsession that I used to have about, and actually I still do when I'm like shopping at the mall or something. If I have something in my bag, I am worried that someone is going to accuse me of having stolen it, even though I had it. Yeah. And I'll like literally practice what I'm going to say to explain like, no, I already had this before. I actually got it from this store and see, you don't even sell this thing here, you know? And it's like, I'm preparing a defense before even for no reason. I've never stolen anything in my life, you know, but that Mm -hmm. fear is so deep. Yep. Yeah. I feel that a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> so recently with church current events or whatever, the Matt Chandler confession type video came out mm-hmm. and well, first of all, like my first reaction to that situation was, okay, this is the same stuff, different day, you know, like, yeah, you know, I'm not surprised or whatever. So I um, started watching the video, like them breaking the news to all the people. And I was like, okay, Provided this isn't a bunch of smoke and mirrors, which the cynic in me says it possibly could be, you know, just like keep up appearances. Mm-hmm. The listening to that message, a person with active scrupulosity, you know, or maybe not even active, but like, you know, it can be woken up in a second's time, you know? Mm-hmm. So listening to that message and hearing him say, I didn't feel like I did anything wrong at any time, but this investigation from this law firm says otherwise, you know, or like, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Like I never said anything, you know, that my wife wasn't aware of. This was fine. That makes me think, oh no, you know, what if, what if I think I'm doing stuff that's okay. And it's actually not. It's triggering. Yeah. Yes. Like, you know, I've lost a lot of faith in like individuals, you know, pastors and stuff like that. But there's still that part of me that won't let go of, well, this person's a pastor. And if even he can mess up, what are you capable of? That inner critic is always saying, like, you know, if he legit thought he wasn't doing anything bad, you know, what does that mean for you? And that is really scary to me. You know, like, it's kind of like, you know, them talking about how they hired this law firm and stuff. It's like, well, you need to have your defense ready because you yeah. you might not have thought you were doing anything wrong, but you grossly were, you know. When you when you watch that video of Matt Chandler kind of explaining what had happened and why he was, you know, gonna take some time off, did it strike you as maybe someone who was also experiencing scrupulosity, just the way that he talked about it? That's an interesting question. I actually hadn't thought about that. It could be, I don't know him personally or anything like that, but like with all of the purity culture, just like enveloped in that situation and in that video, 
you know, the idea like men aren't allowed to talk to women because, you know, the women are going to mess something up, you know, women are dangerous or something like that. Like that brought up a lot, Mm. but like him trying to defend his actions, like, I don't know. I think having scrupulosity kind of makes you extra, extra ethical. So Hmm. if he has scrupulosity or like, if that was part of the picture, like, I don't know. I don't know if I personally would be able to say, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong just because I think I'm doing something wrong. Like 90% of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 it, It kind of, the feeling I got when I watched that, that video was that it was a system that was sort of encouraging scrupulosity, you know, where it's like that, that whole, we need to be above reproach thing, you know, and avoid even the appearance of evil, you know? And so it's like, even if nothing evil happened, which it sounds like nothing did, you know, we still need to run from it and we still need to worry about it. And we still need to like very seriously deal with it because, you know, we need to be above reproach. Yeah. And I don't know. It just, it just felt a little bit like anxiety. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Like I wouldn't wish scrupulosity on anyone, like having lived through so much of it, but I can see what you're saying of like how for a church, like it would be better for, of course it would be better for like a high control environment for other people to have scrupulosity because like, that's how you keep people submitted, you know? Yeah. Or like, that's how you keep people transparent. Like I tend to be a very transparent person you know, confessing to my leaders, all this stuff, you know, um, and that could be a compulsion of mine, you know, just to like get reassurance, make sure I'm okay, bounce stuff off of other people to make sure I'm making the right decision, you know, but yeah, like instilling that anxiety of like, you know, you, you have to be above this, like, yeah, it has its perks for people that are in leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. That video, I actually, um, discussed it with a support group that I'm in for religious trauma survivors. And that video really confused me because there was so much good in there. Mm, Yeah. Of like telling the person that like, you know, came forward with everything, you know, that that was really good of you to do. It was super brave. If you see something, say something type of culture Mm -hmm. and other just like good things in that video of like, expecting transparency from leadership. And I'm like, well, on paper, that could prevent some spiritual abuse or like, you know, religious trauma from occurring. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, I don't know these people. You know, they said they didn't make the lady sign an NDA. And I was like, but had it been worse or like, had it been more severe, like actually sexual, would they have played that card? You know, like, you don't know. Yeah. I just found myself being like really torn back and forth of like, what if I do something wrong and don't realize it? And then I'm on investigation. That's, that's just where my mind goes as a OCD person. So, yeah, it's all about like, what if I get in trouble? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me what, what has helped like with the scrupulosity over time? I mean, obviously the awareness has made a big difference in just being able to point it out when it happens in your brain, but what else has helped? Yeah, that's definitely helped like me being able to say to myself, and this is, you know, the result of a few years of therapy of like, okay, that's actually the OCD talking. That's not like necessarily reality, you know, uh, asking myself, what's the evidence, you know, that this stuff is going to happen? Or like, what's the evidence that I am guilty or something like that? Because there's usually no evidence. (laughs) But 
something that's really helped me is learning about this part of the brain called the cingulate with people with OCD or like whether it manifests religiously or whether it manifests in other ways, um, the cingulate can tend to be like overly active. And so it makes you think you've done something wrong when you actually haven't. Hmm. And so like that second part of it of when you actually haven't is something that I've like clung on to like, okay, I just have this overactive cingulate. It tells me you've done something wrong. You've done something wrong, but there's this possibility that I actually haven't because that's how that part of the brain works. Like I can arrive at that conclusion of like, I haven't done anything wrong. So learning about why that part of the brain is overactive in people with OCD is really helpful just to be like, reality can be different from what you're perceiving. Yeah. I like thinking of things like that, like an error message, you know, like Mm -hmm. I did get this message from my brain, but because I know what it is and how it functions, I know it's an error message and I can just dismiss it and I don't have to like adjust my behavior based on it. Yeah. You know, going back to my involvement in these groups, the idea of like having conviction or like being convicted was almost celebrated. (gasps) Yes. So they're like, Oh, wow. You're so wise. You know, um, you're wise beyond your years. That's so great that you have this gift of discernment, you know, when it was actually (laughs) a mental illness, you know? Oh no. So it being so reinforced of like, you know, you are very moral, you know, you really get the conviction thing. So in tune with the Holy spirit. Yes. Yes. So, you know, getting that error message, I was always like, well, this is discernment. You know, this is the Holy Spirit putting something on my radar. So I'm actually, you know, I never had the freedom before to say that's just a glitch error message. Yeah. So now about the brain, like I have this freedom to say, okay, it's actually a glitch, you know, so that's helped me a lot. Yeah. I have. Um, really developed this like live and let live mentality um, just because in like the high control circles and stuff like that, it's all about like correcting people or like, you know, you getting status or whatever, because you like kind of keep the people below you in line or whatever. Speak the truth and love. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so nowadays um, I'm more about just like live and let live. I'm not out to be correcting people. You know, I can't judge someone's lifestyle. And I used to say that, but I think it means so much different now, you know, like people can make their own decisions and that doesn't mean anything about me. Mm. And so like allowing people to be autonomous and like me do the same. And I think being such a person centered therapist, that really became part of my way of being, you know, it's hard to come out of fundamentalism and then be just like so accepting of people. I think just like, Mm -hmm. you have to kind of do a 180 logically to be able to do that well. But I just really like got into Carl Rogers, person-centered, just like accepting people how they are. Yeah. The idea of like unconditional positive regard for people that don't know. It's like we're therapists, they're supportive of you. Like you have someone who's on your side. No matter what. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, just like, you know, being able to sit with the ambiguity of like, you know, I, I have my own set of thoughts, you have your own set of thoughts. And like, if they're not the same, that's okay. Like, we're allowed to be individuals, you know? Yeah. And thank goodness we are. Because if people had my brain, 
the world would be a very anxious place. So. <laughs> I think if any of us represented all of humanity, that would be pretty horrible. Yes. So do you mind me asking, are you religious currently? Um, I would only be able to say I'm actively deconstructing. Okay. I'm living in that freedom of being able to question stuff. You know, I, you know, I look and i I see so many differences between purity culture and the culture that we have of like, you know, making people feel bad before, you know, telling them the good news and stuff like that. And I'm like, Jesus never did that. You know, Jesus never did so many of these things that like American Christianity encourages, you know? And so I'm, I'm kind of living in that freedom, I guess. Do I evangelize? No. Um, do I indoctrinate children at this point in my life? No, but I will say, you know, I believe that there's no way God is less compassionate than I am. And that's, that's really what I can hold on to. Mm. So if, you know, I'm like, well, I'd forgive someone for that. Like God a hundred percent would. So I don't know. I just, I'm kind of like untangling a lot of stuff, but yeah, if, if I can be compassionate towards a person then God definitely can. Or like, there's no way God is more of an angry person than I am, you know? So like how my anger manifests and stuff, like, I don't think God's could be worse than that. You know, like I question the existence of hell, you know? And like, I would have never been allowed to do that before. So am I religious? I think that word has changed for me over time. Like I used to proudly say yes, but at this point, like, I don't know, I'm kind of like, minimally practicing slash like trying to like see what actually um, fits instead of like all of the guilt and stuff like that. Cause like that doesn't fit. And so um, I don't know, I might be making my own religion. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I'm okay with, I'm okay with people being like, well, that's not biblical. Cause like my aim isn't really to be what people think biblical is. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it sounds like you're you're opening up boxes instead of closing them. Right. And yeah. I think for a lot of people, that's what deconstruction feels like. Mm -hmm. I could also see, though, that process being very triggering of the OCD because it's like, mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to be questioning this. I'm doing something bad. And it's like it activates that whole cycle. Right. Yeah. Or like professionally, like my clients, they probably don't know mm. that. I have a religious background. Like my, my counseling doesn't look religious at all because it's not, you know, it's right. more, I'd say it's more science-based, you know, but I understand where people are coming from when they have these types of things in their backgrounds. Like I, I know the language, you know, um, but mm -hmm. I, uh, I don't think people would know like what I've been through, just like how my counseling is, or like, I, um, I'm not a religious counselor at all. And I think that's, um, that's also been challenging because I went to a seminary for my uh, master's in counseling and it was very, you know, God is giving you this degree, you know, <laughs> or it's mm. like, this is a hundred percent science, a hundred percent Christian, you know, um, in that um, standpoint. Granted, I went to a seminary that I really appreciated as being quite liberal, mm. but um, that's kind of, you know, weird for me to be like, no, I'm definitely not a Christian counselor religion does not have a place in my counseling room. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I think about stuff like that a lot. Yeah. Well, I think it, it makes sense that 
that you would want to be really careful about as an authority figure in the room, not, you know, imposing something that could potentially do harm instead of good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I think something that I've worked on ever since I started the deconstruction road or chapter of my life or something like that is really working to be congruent, you know, like, Mm. making sure I'm the same person in to my clients as I am outside of it. Mm, Yeah. So some of that has really been me making sure I'm not getting back involved with like high control groups, um, you know, because I'm helping people heal from that. And so like, how can I be living this double life of like me just like falling back into the same, you know? So I've worked really hard, like regarding my religious involvement, taking a step back from the group stuff, Um, partly because my nervous system feels more at ease, not being a part of it. And the other part is that like, you know, I need to just figure some things out and figure out who I am identity wise before, before anything, you know, because I can't, I can't say one thing to my clients and then turn around and do something else. Yeah. So, um, well, and, and like, like you said, God, if they are a God, then I'm sure they understand that process that you're going through and have a lot of mercy. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can just, I can kind of wait in that and like, there's not going to be like, Hey, you know, standing in front of the judge, right? Why did you not go to church between 2021 and 2021? You know, like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't need to come up with a defense anymore. I'm figuring out just like everyone else throughout history has. And like, Mm. it's okay. Like I'm separating the American culture from what people say God is, you know? Yeah. So just having the space and the ability, I guess, or the permission to do that has been really transformative for my religious experience, I think. Yeah. I love that language that you keep using of like giving yourself permission to do things as opposed to needing mm-hmm. to wait for an authority figure to give you permission. Yes. Um, that's very, very liberating. Yes. Anyone who's going through like deconstruction or reconstruction, whatever it is, like it can feel so unfamiliar and different, but that doesn't mean it's bad. You know, something can be just different and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, when I speak on podcasts and stuff like that, it's like, <laughs> I could see people being like, they let you help people. <laughs> like, you're <laughs> like, you have these issues and they let you be a counselor, you know? Like, I feel like my family would say that. Uh, like, welcome to the group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, I, I don't have any shame with sharing like stuff has messed me up or like, you know, I have personal experience with this, you know, counseling sessions aren't going to be about me in any sense when I'm like with a client or anything like that. But it's just like, I get it and I can hold space for that, you know? Mm. So it's been freeing too. I think just like to be able to hold the space for it and understand like it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel, yeah. Well, so we are kind of at the end of our time, but with all of my guests, I, try and have them tell a story at the end that something maybe a little bit lighter, uh, something about church culture that's funny or ironic. Um, do you have anything? Yes, I'll take you. <laughs> I can take you back to my street evangelism days. So my my husband and I, it was before we were married. I think we might've been like dating at the time or something, 
But um, we would kind of like go together and like hand out tracks to people in public. Romantic. You know? <laughs> <I know. laughs> it was. It was great. We still joke and like we still remember the spiel that we would tell people. Like that guilt message that I was talking about earlier. Like I would say it. If you died today, are you 100% sure? Yes. Yeah. Ours was, ours was, um, do you consider yourself to be a good person? And people would be like, yeah, generally. Well, guess what? You're not. Oh, no. <laughs> That's so it mean. So it was bad. It was terrible. Like, I I regret doing that. Um, <laughs> but there was this one time we were at this park um, and this guy was walking. So we started, like, walking with him. Like, hey, you know, can we ask you a question? Like, all this stuff. He did not want to talk to us. You know, like, mm-hmm. he was just, he starts walking so fast. <laughs> I've never seen, I've never seen like a power walker walk this fast before. So we were kind of like, you know, walking fast to keep up. Then it turned into like a light jog, you know, oh, no. and he was just, <laughs> and then like, he was just walking, like I was jogging, but he was walking. Like, I don't know. He was like an Olympic walker or something. And um, yeah, so it just ended up like, okay, bye. <laughs> Oh, he was like, I do not give consent for your evangelism. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, looking back, I'm like, Lisa, why didn't you take the hint? Like (laughs) that guy did not want to talk to you. But you were trying to save him. It was so bad. I was, I was like, my whole life has been just like good intention, you know? And I'm like, oh yeah, it's just like so much to untangle, you know? But I'm like, why was I doing that? That's so funny. I wonder where that guy is now. And if he remembers that. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I hope not. It's so embarrassing, but yep. That's it. I love that's it. My story. That's a great story. Yep. Yeah. The speed yep. walker trying to, uh, outrun you. Oh my gosh. It's embarrassing. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Oh yeah. You're welcome. Thank you for the invite. I really appreciate it. Super humbled to be part. So Absolutely. Thank you. You Thanks. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye. Bye.